And good afternoon. You're listening to Ken Hudnall. This is the Ken Hudnall Show. Coming to you from our studios right here in exciting El Paso, Texas. Gateway to the Old West and the most haunted city in the country. Today's April the 7th, 97th day of the year. 268 days remain to the year's over with. And for all those who asked me to talk about the holidays and observances on this date, it is Good Friday. Supposedly a day of prayer and devotion. National Beer Day. World Health Day. Day of Remembrance of the Victims of the Rwanda Genocide Day. International Beaver Day. International Snail Papers Day. Karumi Day. Celebrating the life and times of Zanzibar's first president. Make the First Move Day. Metric System Day. Motherhood and Beauty Day. Okay, it's also... Mozambican National Women's Day, National Coffee Cake Day, National Girl Me Too Day, National Nico Day, National No Housework Day, National Pet Health Insurance Day, Poet in a Cupcake Day, Public Television Day, um, Experience the Well, there we go. Walk to Work Day. World Marble Day. And Hospital Admitting Clerks Day. Here's a day for you. Alrighty. On uh, this date in 451, Attila the Hun captures Metz in France killing most of its inhabitants and burning the town. You know him. He didn't get mad. He just burned down your town. Five twenty-nine. The first corpus juris civilis fundamental work in jurisprudence is issued by Eastern Roman Emperor Justinian the first. 1141, Empress Matilda becomes the first female ruler of England, adopting the title Lady of the English. 1348, Holy Roman Emperor Charles IV, charters Prague University. 1449, Felix V advocates his claim to the papacy, ending the reign of the, the final antipope. 1521, Ferdinand Magellan arrives in Cebu. 1541, Francis Xavier leaves Lisbon on a mission to the Portuguese East Indies. 1724, premier performance of Johann Sebastian Bach's St. John Passion at St. Nicholas Church in Leipzig. 1767, end of the Burmese-Siamese War. 1788, on this date, settlers established Marietta, Ohio, the first permanent settlement created by U.S. citizens in the recently organized Northwest Territory. 1765, the French First Republic adopts the kilogram and gram as its primary unit of mass. 1790, Greek War of Independence, Greek revolutionary Rambros Cassonis loses three of his ships in the Battle of Andros. 1798, the Mississippi Territory is organized from disputed territory claimed by both the U.S. and the Spanish Empire. It's expanded in 1804 and then once again in 1812. 1805, the Lewis and Clark Expedition. The Corps of Discovery breaks camp among the Mandan tribe and resumes its journey west along the Missouri River. He also owned this date in 1805. German composer Ludwig von Beethoven premieres his third symphony at the Theater Andervain in Vienna. 1831, Pedro II becomes emperor of the Empire of Brazil. Yes, it was an empire at one point, and in fact, at the end of the American Civil War, they invited uh, uh, southern uh, 
unreconstructed rebels, so to speak, to come. They gave them land, and there was even a southern town in Brazil. I think it raised the Confederate flag every morning until sometime in the 1960s. 1862, American Civil War. Union's Army of the Tennessee and the Army of the Ohio defeat the Confederate Army of Mississippi near Shiloh, Tennessee. 1868, Thomas D'Arcy McGee, one of Canadian fathers of Confederation, is assassinated by a Finian activist. 1906, Mount Vesuvius erupts and devastates Naples. 1906 also saw the Angeceres Conf Conference give uh, France and Spain control over Morocco. 1922, the Teapot Dome Scandal. U.S. Secretary of the Interior Albert B. Fall leases federal petroleum reserves to private oil companies on excessively generous terms. 1926, Violet Gibson attempts to assassinate Italian Prime Minister Benito Mussolini. 1927, AT&T engineer Herbert Ives transmits the first long-distance public television broadcast from Washington, D.C. to New York City displaying the image of Commerce Secretary Herbert Hoover. 1933, prohibition in the U.S. is repealed for beer of no more than 3.2% alcohol by weight eight months before ratification of the 21st Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. It's now celebrated as National Beer Day in the U.S. Also on this date, 1933, Nazi Germany issues the law for the restoration of the professional civil service banning Jews and political dissidents from Civil Service Post. 1939, Benito Mussolini declares an Italian protectorate over Albania and forces King Zog I into exile. The Italian army wasn't a... a um, There's no great shakes at defeating enemies unless they outnumbered them uh, many times to one. Observe, if you will, in fact, they were beaten by the Ethiopian army, who was primarily on horseback with spears. And in 40, Booker T. Washington becomes the first African-American to be depicted on a U.S. Uh, postage stamp. 1943, the Holocaust in Ukraine. In Trebovlia, Germans order 1,100 Jews to undress and march through the city to the nearby village of Tlebanivka, where they're shot and buried in ditches. 1943, Ionis Ravis becomes collaborationist prime minister of Greece during the Axis occupation. Also in 1943, the National Football League makes helmets mandatory. Before that, you didn't have to wear a helmet. You wear a hat. 1945, World War II, the Imperial Japanese Navy battleship Yamato, one of the two largest ever constructed, is sunk by United States Navy aircraft during Operation Tengo. 1946, Soviet Union annexes East Prussia as the Kaliningrad obelisk of the Soviet Federal, Federal uh, so Russian Soviet Federative Socialist Republic. And the peanut gallery is wow. Okay. 1948, the World Health Organization is established by the UN. 1954, President Eisenhower gives his domino theory speech during a news conference. 1955, Winston Churchill resigns as Prime Minister of the UK and in the, amid indications of failing health. 1956, Franco West Spain agrees to surrender as protectorate in Morocco. 1964, IBM announces the system 360. Okay. I don't know what happened there. My system had a bit of a hiccup. 1965, representatives of the National Congress of American Indians testify before members of the Senate in Washington. They're testifying against the termination of the Colville tribe. 1968, two-time Formula One British world champion Jim Clark dies in an accident during a Formula Two race in Hockenheim. 1969, the Internet's symbolic birth date. Publication of RFC One. 1971, during the Vietnam War, President Nixon announces his decision to quicken the pace of Vietnamization. 1972, Vietnam War, Communist forces overrun the South Vietnamese town of Lac Ninh. 1976, members of Parliament and the suspected spy John Stonehouse resigns from uh, the Labor Party after being arrested for 
faking his own death. 1977, German federal prosecutor Siegfried Bubach and his driver are shot by two Red Army faction members while waiting at a red light. 1978, development of the neutron bomb is canceled by President Jimmy the Peanut Man Carter. 1980, during the Iran hostage crisis, the U.S. severs relations with Iran. 1982, Iranian Foreign Affairs Minister Sadiq Ghazali is arrested. 1983, during STS-6, astronauts uh, Story Musgrave and Don Peters performed the first space shuttle spacewalk. 1988, Soviet Defense Minister Dmitry Yazov orders the Soviet withdrawal from Afghanistan. 1989, Soviet submarine Komsomol seats in the Barents Sea off the coast of Norway. 42 die. 1990, a fire breaks out on the passenger ferry Scandinavian Star, killing 159 people. 1990, <coughs> also saw John Poindexter convicted for his role in the Iran-Contra affair. 1991, the convictions are reversed on appeal. 1994, Rwandan genocide. Massacres of the Tutsis began in Kigali, Rwanda, and soldiers killed the civilian prime minister, Agatha. You willing Iamana. I'm sure I butchered the name. 1994, Alvin Calloway attempts to destroy Federal Express Flight 705 in order to allow his family to benefit from his life insurance policy. Also in 95, first Chechen war, Russian paramilitary troops began to massacre civilians in Shamaski in Chechnya. 1999, Turkish Airlines Flight 5904 crashes near Sehan in southern Turkey, killing six. 2001, NASA launches the 2001 Mars Odyssey Orbiter. 2003, Iraqi War. Two U.S. troops capture Baghdad. Saddam Hussein's Ba'athist regime falls two days later. 2009, former Peruvian President Alberto Fujimori is sentenced to 25 years in prison for ordering killings and kidnappings by security forces. 2009, mass protests began across Moldova under the belief that the results of the parliamentary erection are fraudulent. 2011, the Israeli Defense Forces use their Iron Dome missile systems to successfully intercept a BM-21 Grad launch from Gaza, making it the first short-range missile intercept ever. They're intercepting a bunch of them right now. 2017, a man deliberately drives a hijacked truck into a crowd of people in Stockholm, Sweden, kills five and injures 15 others. 2017, President Trump orders the 2017 Shayrat missile strike against Syria in retaliation for the Khan Sakun uh, chemical attack. 2018, former Brazilian President Luiz Inacio Lula da Silva is arrested for corruption by the termination of Judge Sergio Moro from the car wash operation. Lula was uh, imprisoned for 580 days after being released by the Brazilian Supreme Court. Uh, 2018, Syria launches the Duma chemical attack against the Eastern Ghouta offensive of the Syrian Civil War. 2020, COVID-19, China ends its lockdown in Wuhan. 2020, also in the COVID-19 pandemic. Acting Secretary of the Navy Thomas Modley resigns for his handling of the COVID-19 pandemic on the USS Theodore Roosevelt, the dismissal of Brett Cozier. 2021, also the COVID-19 pandemic, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention announces that the SARS-CoV-2 alpha variant has become the dominant strain of COVID-19 in the U.S. And in 2022, Kotaji Brown Jackson is confirmed for the Supreme Court of the U.S., becoming the first black female justice. Okay, as I said yesterday, we're going to finish up today with talks about um, strange crimes and stupid criminals. And then Monday, go back to talking about the evidence of physical giants in North America in history. 
And this might be the story of the not-so-high horse. Life-size fiberglass horse was the perfect topper for Bruce and Ellen uh, Weatherton's new shop in Central Point, Oregon, called the Horse Blanket Saddles and Tack. Now today, that horse is a well-known landmark. But back in 1983, when they first opened the store and put the horse on the roof, some prankster decided it needed to come down. One day, about 2.30 in the morning, Bruce got a call from a deputy. Told him to come get your horse in the middle of the street. Well, what really upset Bruce was the fact the horse thieves used the hacksaw to cut the horse off at the ankles. He told the Medford Mail Tribune all four nuts were loose. All they had to do was undo the nuts. So Witherton brought the horse to the vet, or actually, in this case, a repair shop, and paid nearly as much to get it fixed as it cost in the first place. Well, not long after it went back up, they came back again. The uh, pranksters, if you will. This time they actually broke the poor horse's legs. That led to more repairs. Well, the ones weren't giving up, though. The only way to save the, the horse, chop down the walnut tree the pranksters are using to get up on the roof. Well, that should have solved the problem, right? Well, not exactly. Perpetrators simply climbed up an elm tree next to an adjacent building, so they almost cut down two. And the horse has been safely on the roof ever since. Never did find out who the pranksters were. Well, let's talk about one of the most widely publicized kidnappings of the 20th century. It happened May 20th, 1927. Charles Lindbergh completed a nonstop flight of 33 and a half hours from New York to Paris in the, the plane, the Spirit of St. Louis. He became a national hero. Married New Jersey heiress Ann Mara and had a son. Charles A. Lindbergh, Jr. Everybody called him the Eaglet, since Charles Lindbergh, Sr. was known as the Eagle. Well, on March 1st, 1932, they stayed an extra few days in their Hopewell estate, accessible only by a private airfield or a winding dirt road. About 8 p.m. that evening, a nurse took to, tucked the little boy into his uh, second-floor nursery. At about 10 that evening, the nurse checked on the baby, but he was gone. He had escaped. After a thorough search of the, of the house, Lindbergh called police to report his son had been kidnapped. When the police arrived, they found a chisel and a handmade extension ladder outside the house. No footprints on the ground. And in the nursery, Lindbergh discovered an envelope with a note. That said, have $50,000 ready. After two to four days, we'll inform you where to deliver the money. We warn you for making a, anything public or to notify the police the child's in uh, good care. Now, the note was seriously misspelled. The note's signature, two interlocking red circles with three holes punched in the design, were an indication of any future correspondence from the kidnapper. Well, news of the crime, of course, went public. Reporters and gawkers were immediately trampling the Lindbergh estate, destroying potential evidence. Police didn't take cast of the footprints, and the throngs lured in a chance to, to actually make cast of them. You know, one of the many citizens offering help to the Lindberghs was Dr. John Jaffe Condon, a retired principal living in the Bronx. He declared himself willing to negotiate with the kidnapper. Amazingly, Jaffe got a letter accepting his mediation offer. And it was marked with the kidnapper's uh, signature, the two in a, uh, interlocking uh, circles with the three holes punched. Now, Lindbergh authorized the inexperienced and many people said suspicious Jaffe to negotiate on his behalf. Condon got more letters from the kidnapper, who also uh, sent the uh, Eaglet's pajamas along. 
Following the kidnapper's orders, Jassy went to a Bronx cemetery April 2, 1932, and delivered $50,000 in gold certificates to a man with a foreign accent who was immediately nicknamed by the press Cemetery John. In return, Jassy got another letter that claimed that the little boy was alive on the boat called the Nelly. Search ensued, of course, and the Nelly was never found. May 12, the truck driver went into the woods to relieve himself and discovered the remains of a baby. It was Lindbergh Jr. According to Deuce, it had been lying in the woods since the time of the kidnapping. Well, in 1934, police got a lead to the kidnappers. A gas station customer paid with a gold certificate the attendant thought might be counterfeit. So he wrote down the customer's license plate number and called police. Police checked the serial numbers on the certificate, and it turned out to be part of the Lindbergh ransom. This led authorities to Bruno Hoffman, a carpenter from Germany, and Hoffman was an illegal immigrant whose description matched Cemetery John's. When the police arrested him, they found more than $11,000 in ransom money in his apartment. Well... There's still questions about uh, whether or not um, Hoffman was uh, the actual kidnapper. The prosecutor in the case, whose name was David Willits, asserted that greed was the motive for the Lindbergh kidnapping. Hoffman lost a lot of money in the stock market and used a homemade ladder to break into the Lindbergh home, took the baby, and left behind a ransom note. According to Willits, Hoffman killed little Charlie immediately so he wouldn't cry out. Although he also did suggest the baby died from a fall when the ladder broke as the kidnapper tried to escape. Afterward, Hoffman buried the body in the nearby woods on the side of the road. The uh, Hoffman was defended by... Uh, defense attorney named Edward Big Ed Riley. He was hired by Hearst Newspapers to keep the media circus going. Riley asserted the kidnapping was actually a conspiracy between Hoffman's shadowy business partner, said to be Furrier Isidore Fish, and someone on Lindbergh's staff. In Germany, Hoffman served time for burglary. In one of his crimes, he did use a ladder he had built. The Lindbergh bills were found in his home. The ladder used in the kidnapping was partly constructed from a beam in the attic of his house. Jaffe uh, Condon's uh, phone number was written inside a closet. Handwriting experts testified Hoffman's writing matched the ransom notes, and his private papers revealed some of the same grammar mistakes and misspelled words that the kidnapper used. And a taxi driver and Condon had both seen Cemetery John. Lindbergh heard his voice, and all three testified Hoffman was Cemetery John. At the same time that Cemetery John picked up his money, Hoffman quit working as a carpenter. In the 30s, $50,000 was a tremendous amount of money. Well, the defense claimed the police had written the phone number on the wall and stolen the board from Hoffman's garage to claim it was part of the kidnapper's ladder. Police couldn't prove they didn't. Hoffman was roughed up by police and forced to imitate the handwriting on ransom notes for the prosecution's handwriting experts to look at. Hoffman wouldn't know which was uh, the nursery window at the Hopewell Estate. The house had 20 rooms. It was a huge house. He couldn't know Lindbergh baby would be there since the family usually spent weekdays in Inglewood. Anna Hoffman testified she'd been with her husband on the night of the kidnapping. And there was no witnesses to say that he actually went into the window. The jury found him guilty, of course. I mean, you could have put my dog up, and the jury would have found him guilty. This was Lindbergh, of course. He was taken to the prison in Trenton, where he was executed April 3rd, 1936. Now, Hoffman never confessed, despite being offered plea bargains. The Lindbergh family believed that justice was served, and meanwhile, Anna Hoffman campaigned to clear her husband's name. And many began to believe her. And to this day, authors and historians and crime buffs continue to debate the trial's verdict. There was also, if you remember Agatha Christie's um, 
story about the um, murder on the Orient Express that revolved around uh, a very kidnapping very similar to the Lindbergh kidnapping. And there were many stories that uh, Hoffman had, or the actual kidnappers had, an inside confederate. But it was never proven. Though I do believe a member of the staff did commit suicide. Well... Police in Ferrell, Spain, charged Antonio Navarro with driving while intoxicated on a highway. And it was only going 12 miles an hour. And he wasn't driving a car. He's a quadriplegic, and the police busted him driving his motorized bed on the freeway. So you might ask yourself, where did he have to go in such a hurry that he used his motorized bed... Well, he said he was on the way to the local brothel. Police in Newark, Ohio, arrested 28-year-old Kyle uh, Wiggle for drunk driving in 2009. He wasn't driving a car, though. He was driving a motorized bar stool, which he built himself. And he was the one that called the police. You see, it's... It's a fascinating story. He was actually drunk, lost control of the motorized bar stool, fell off, and called 911 for medical assistance. Well, instead of the paramedics, the police arrived and arrested him for driving while intoxicated. Another story. About 4 o'clock one morning in 2009, an 18-year-old British Army soldier stationed in northern Germany decided to steal one of his squadron's tanks. Broke into the eight-ton scimitar tank, made it about a third of a mile before the vehicle ran off the road and got stuck. So he went back to the base and stole another tank. This time, British military police followed him. He blocked his path, forcing him to swerve and crash into a tree. And I don't know if you've ever driven a tank... But there's not a lot that can stop it, but hitting a tree sometimes will do that. Well, in November 2007, hundreds of people around Fargo, North Dakota, got letters containing invitations to a party. Invitations were printed on purple stationery and had images of spider webs and skulls on them and came from a, a group that called itself PDL Productions. Now, they weren't your average party invitations. They were a party in the, at a Fargo nightclub with British rock legend Ozzy Osbourne. He was performing in Fargo, uh, at the Fargo Dome later that night, so the invitees were promised backstage passes to the show. Well, interestingly enough, 44 invitees showed up at the club and were immediately arrested. You see, this is part of a sting set up by the Fargo Sheriff. His name was Paul Laney. That's what the PDL stood for, Paul D. Laney, who had the specific, specially made invitations sent to hundreds of people at outstanding arrest warrants. But when Osborne heard about the stunt, he just simply was not amused. He said in the statement, the sheriff should be ashamed for himself for using my celebrity to arrest these criminals. Laney said he didn't mean to show any disrespect for Mr. Osborne. and In fact, several of his deputies went to the show after the they finished busting the folks that showed up. Well, you know, there's many oddities, I guess you could say, with people like Osborne. Let's talk about Death by Duel. In 1859, Senator David Broderick of California, a power broker in the Democratic Party's uh, anti-slavery faction, was challenged to a duel by a political enemy and pro-slavery activist David Terry, California's Chief Justice. They dueled at Lake Merced, south of San Francisco. Broderick had the first shot, but when his gun misfired, 
Terry calmly put a bullet through Broderick's chest. Broderick now has the unique distinction of being the only U.S. senator to be killed in a duel while in office. Terry was tried for murder and acquitted. 1889, the elderly Terry was gunned down by the Supreme Court Justice Stephen Field's bodyguard after Terry confronted Field in a train station restaurant and slapped him. Shooting him might have been a little drastic, but, you know, go figure. In 1917, a war protester named Alexander Benwart and two other men confronted Massachusetts Senator Harry Ke- uh, Henry Cabot Lodge in his office. They wanted to urge Senator Lodge to vote no on the upcoming resolution in World War I. The words coward and liar were spoken during the disagreement. Then the 67-year-old senator got up and decked a 36-year-old pacifist. Knocked him cold. Protester was arrested. But Lodge said he was too busy to press charges. Two days later, Lodge voted with the majority of his fellow senators to go to war. Van Wart later caught the patriotic fever that was uh, gripping the nation, and after announcing that he'd changed his mind, he enlisted in the Army. Well, you know, Ed Cock is known for a lot of things. He was the former mayor of New York City. But one thing he was known for was a interesting statement. He said, life is indeed precious, and I believe the death penalty helps to affirm that fact. Well, there's a lot of interesting um, statements made by Mr. Cock. I met him several times. I always thought he was a very bizarre individual. Well, let's talk about... um, Charles Whitman, the sniper in the tower. Well, everybody thought he was a regular clean-cut guy. Born in Lake Worth, Florida, 1941, to a well-off family. He was, uh, Charles Whitman went to Catholic schools, excelled at piano playing, and became an Eagle Scout at the age of 12. But all wasn't perfect within the family home. His father, uh, C.A. Whitman, abused his wife and wasn't much nicer to his kids. Even when Charles was 18, his father continued to beat him for what he saw as transgressions. Interestingly enough, I once asked my father who he thought he was, and when I got up, I knew. You know, he enlisted in the Marines in 1959. Not my father, but uh, Charles Whitman. Proved himself a model Marine who excelled at following orders and earned a good conduct medal, a sharpshooter's badge, and the praise of observers who noted he was an expert at long-distance shooting, particularly when his targets were moving. Well, he enrolled at the University of Texas at Austin to study engineering. But, for some reason, he struggled with his studies. Met his wife Kathleen there, and the two got married, but that didn't really settle him down. Bounced in and out of university over the next few years, and at one point he was ordered back to military service due to poor college grades. Yeah, that's a punishment for you. 1963 was court-martialed after threatening another soldier to whom he had loaned money. He was sentenced to 90 days behind bars and 90 days, of, excuse me, 30 days behind bars and 90 days of hard labor, and stripped of his rank as well. He was a private again. Miserably turned to his hated father to pull some strings to reduce his enlistment period. Father succeeded, and Charles Whitman was discharged in December 1964. He went back to Austin. He was depressed and anxious about his inability to live up to his own standards. Visited the university's health center in March and reported uh, to the attending doctor. He said he felt like a failure and despised his father. He also mentioned fantasizing about going up on the tower with a deer rifle and shooting people. Well, the doctor, of course, didn't take him seriously. Prescribed Valium to calm his nerves. Whitman first visited the tower July 22, 1966, to uh, stake it out. Shortly before noon on August 1st, he arrived on campus and talked his way into the tower. On the 28th floor observation deck, he took his place and took out a scoped rifle. Within 90 minutes, he had killed 14 people and injured 31 more. Almost two hours after he entered the tower, police officers finally made their way to the deck and shot him. 
killed him. And the note he left behind, he said he killed his mother and wife too. Initially, nobody believed that, but it turned out to be true. And he was prepared to die. Well, the tower was closed for the next 25 years after the shooting. It was reopened in 1999. Well, you know, when you there's a lot of discussion about uh, legalizing marijuana. And the law about it is crystal clear. In February 2011, Joel Dobrin, 32, of San Diego, California, was driving down a road in Sherman County, Oregon. Some marijuana and hashish, a road shotgun on the front seat of his pickup truck, is pulled over by a deputy sheriff. As the officer approached, Dobrin grabbed the sock that was laying on the floor of the truck and stashed his drugs inside it. But his dog, who was a pit bull, grabbed the sock and started playing tug-of-war with it, and the sock flew out the open window of the truck. The sheriff's deputy simply retrieved the sock, and the drugs fell out. The sheriff's spokesman later said, uh, I wish everybody traveled with their own personal drug dog. You know, Robert Watson was driving down an East Haven, Connecticut road one night in April 2011 came across a police sobriety checkpoint. Police checked his car, and they found marijuana in, his car, uh, in the car. Watson was arrested for possessing the marijuana. Blood tests found he had small amounts of cocaine in his system as well. Unfortunately for him, Watson was a member of the Rhode Island House of Representatives and had a record of stridently opposing marijuana legalization of voting for stiff penalties for drug offenses. Be careful what you wish for, folks. Well, you know, sometimes history is not correct in its uh, pronouncements. For example, Matahari went down in history as the exotic dancer who loosened many lips in the surface of the Germans during World War One. In other words, she was a spy. However, that is now questionable. She was born in 1876, met husband-to-be Rudolph McLeod through a personal ad, and soon after joined him at his post in Java. A few years later, she fled to Paris to begin her exotic dancing career. Brilliant audiences flocked to her titillating performances, even booked into a few Italian opera houses. Well, by 1915... Her career was fading fast. She was doing less dancing on stage and more horizontal boogie with men in her bedroom. Recently unearthed French files revealed dozens of Matahari's clients, including German military attaché Major Arnold Kiley. That affair is probably the one that got her killed. In 1917, Matahari was arrested by the French and accused of spying for the Germans. They produced decoded messages outlining a German plan to hire her as a spy. Now, not only were the French unable to produce any evidence of secrets she'd handed over, high-ranking French officers testified she'd tried several times to give information to them on German activities. Well, in spite of it, she was convicted of spying and executed in 1917. Rumor has it she opened her blouse to distract the squad that was firing at her. In actuality... Not a single button came open. Well, one sweltering summer afternoon in 2017, a burglary suspect, who was not named in the press reports, was jumping from rooftop to rooftop in a La Punta, California neighborhood. Chase ended when the cops had the suspect trapped on the roof of a one-story house. Unsure about the man's mental state, they didn't want to risk a forceful takedown, afraid he might jump off the one-story house. So they called in a crisis management team, and a tense standoff ensued. 
No matter what the team team tried, though, the man refused to budge. He sat on that roof for five hours. That's when Willard Burgess uh, decided he had enough. Eighty-three-year-old resident of the house told officers that sucker's coming off of here and went to his neighbors, grabbed a ladder, and before police could stop him, climbed up on the roof. Burgess yelled at the burglar and told him to get down. Burglar refused. So Burgess threw him off the roof. Deputies took him into custody and then took him to the hospital. The story doesn't say what they did to Burgess. After all, it was assault. And in 83, it might have been assault with a dead weapon. You don't know. Well, let's talk about speedy justice in Texas. The defendant was named John Cracker, Texas personal injury lawyer. And his crime was flaunting his wealth in public. In 1991, Kraken represented a disabled widow in a lawsuit against her husband's employer, the Rock 10 Company. Rock 10 is a recycling company, then the man was killed in a bailing machine. Kraken sued for $25 million, but Rock 10's case was so weak there was talk the jury might award as much as $60 million. Shortly before deliberation were to begin, some of the jurors happened to spot Kraken in the courthouse parking garage, driving a brand new red Porsche 911. Jury eventually awarded Kraken's client only five million when they'd been talking about sixty. And after the case was over, they were asked, "Why did you award so little?" And one jury said, "There's no way I'm going to buy that lawyer another fancy car. Well, his fee would have probably been uh, probably a contingent fee. One third went to him. If they awarded sixty to the widow, she'd have given twenty of it to the attorney." Well, how many folks have ever heard about the um, cadaver synod? It's a trial that's stranger than anything you'd ever see on court TV. You wouldn't even see this on Judge Judy. In 891, Pope Stephen V turned to Duke Guido III of Spilillo for protection because the Catholic Church was losing power as the Roman Empire disintegrated. To cement the relationship, Stephen adopted him as his son and crowned him Holy Roman Emperor. Well, Pope Stephen V died a few months later, and the new Pope, Formosus I, was elected to head the church. Now, Guido was suspicious of the new Pope's loyalty, and he insisted that uh, Formosus name uh, Guido's son Lambert as heir apparent. When uh, Guido died in 894, Formosus backed out of the deal. Rather than crown uh, Lambert Emperor, he called on King Arnulf of East Francia to liberate Rome from Guido's family. A year later, Arnulf conquered Rome and Formosus made him emperor. Well, that relationship didn't last all that long. Within a few months, Arnulf would suffer paralysis and return to Germany. And a few months after that, Pope Formosus died. Lambert, who'd retreated back to Spoleto, used the crisis to rally his troops and march on Rome, reconquered the city in 897. The new pope, Stephen VI, quickly switched sides and crowned Lambert as emperor. Well, what followed was one of the most peculiar episodes in the history of the Catholic Church. And there have been some doozies, let me tell you. Eager to prove his loyalty to the Spilettos, uh, Pope Stephen convened the Cadaver Synod, in which he literally had Pope Formosus' nine-month-old rotting corpse put on trial for perjury, coveting the papacy and other crimes. It's kind of similar to what the DA in New York City has done to former President Trump. On Stephen's orders, the cadaver was disinterred, dressed in papal robes, and propped up on a throne for the trial. Now, since the body was in no condition to answer the charges made against it, uh, a deacon was appointed to answer questions on its behalf. Not surprisingly, the cadaver was found guilty on all counts. As punishment, all the Formosus's uh, papal acts were declared null and void. The corpse itself was also desecrated. Three fingers on the right hand used to confer blessings were hacked off. 
Body was stripped naked and dumped in a cemetery for foreigners. Shortly after that, it was tossed in the Tiber River, where a hermit fished it out and gave it a proper burial. Well, while the Synod is still in question, an earthquake struck Rome and destroyed the Papal Basilica. Taking this as a sign of God's anger against the upstart Pope, encouraged by rumors that Formosus' corpse had begun performing miracles, Formosus' supporters arrested Stephen and threw him into the Papal prison, where he was later strangled. Can't trust anybody. Well, I'm sure everyone has heard about the one of the most famous feuds in history, the Hatfields and the McCoys. Now, the Hatfields, headed by Anderson, Devil Ants Hatfield, lived on the West Virginia side of the stream, and the McCoys, whose patriarch was Randolph Old Randall McCoy, lived on the Kentucky side. During the Civil War, the Hatfields sided with the Confederacy, and the McCoys sided with the Union. 1880, relations worsened when McCoy's daughter became pregnant by Devil Ants' son John's and went across the river to live unmarried with the Hatfields. 1882, Randolph's son Tolbert stabbed Devil Ants' brother Ellison in a brawl. When Ellison died a few days later, the Hatfields retaliated by tying three of the McCoy brothers to some bushes and executing them. McCoy's uh, struck back one night in 1888. Group of uh, Hatfields surrounded Old Rand's uh, McCoy's house. He was away at the time and ordered the inhabitants to come out and surrender. But no one did. They set fire to the house. Old Rand's daughter and son ran out and both were shot, killed. Last attack was so brutal. Officials in both Kentucky and West Virginia finally felt compelled to intervene. One Hatfield participated in the raid, was convicted, and hung for the crime. Several others were sentenced to long prison sentences. With most violent offenders behind bars and the rest of the clan members, a worry of years of killing the feud kind of petered out. Well, in spite of the, uh, shall we say, lenient treatment that liberal DAs are handing out to criminals these days, there is proof that crime doesn't pay. Residents of a Portland, Oregon neighborhood were concerned about an alleged drug house. They tried numerous times to get the police to investigate it, but to no avail. Then in late 2001, somebody in the area saw a flyer, removed it from a pole, and brought it to the cops. That was all they needed to secure a warrant. When officers raided the house, they discovered marijuana, heroin, a sawed-off shotgun, thousands of dollars in cash, and the materials for a meth lab. So what exactly was on that flyer that finally got the police to get it in gear? It said, very simply, in large letters, heroin for sale, and listed the address. When the thief in Severina, Brazil, stole a woman's purse and ran away, during the sprint, he put the purse strap in his mouth and dialed his cell phone. But the purse fell to the ground, and when he scooped it up, they looked behind something else. His dentures. A witness found him and turned him over to the police. Brief, in brief investigation led officers to the home of Milton Cesar de Jesus, 34, who tried to keep his mouth closed. He was ordered to try on the dentures. They fit perfectly, and he was arrested. If you're running away, having just committed a crime, why take the time to make a cell phone call? Well, William Henry King grew up poor in mid-1800s Ontario, but became a doctor after his marriage to Sarah Lawson in 1855. Her wealthy father actually paid for his uh, medical school bills. Future seemed wide open for the newlyweds until King let his true nature show after the birth of his first child. Daughter was born handicapped and died after a month. Sarah suspected King was actually killed the baby and fled to her parents' house. He managed to win her back. King built a successful medical practice and started an affair with a woman named Melinda Vandervoort. William told Melinda that Sarah was ill and would soon die. Soon, sure enough, Sarah came down with a sudden case of cholera. King treated her with a powdered white medicine. Within a month, Sarah Lawson was dead. Well, her father was 
Lee had knew what strings to pull. Organized an investigation into her death, and King panicked. He fled with Vendevort to her farm in New York, but authorities tracked him down. The murder trial was a sensation. A professor from Toronto testified he'd discovered 11 grains of arsenic in Sarah's stomach, and a jury convicted King of murder. In Ontario's last public hanging, Daca was trotted out in front of 10,000 spectators. Before his noose was tightened, King confessed to the crowd, went to his grave believing that God had forgiven him for his crime. Well, maybe not. You know, there's been a lot of unsolved mysteries in history, but none is stranger than the last voyage of the Mary Celeste. November 5th, 1872, a ship named the Mary Celeste set out from New York bound for Genoa, Italy, under the command of Captain Benjamin Briggs. On board were a crew of seven, along with the captain's wife and their two-year-old daughter. A month later, in the morning of December 4th, the Mary Celeste sailed out of the fog off the coast of Spain was spotted by the crew of the British ship De Grazia. Mary Celeste's sails were raised, and the hull and mast appeared to be in good order. The crew of the De Gracia hailed the ship and didn't get an answer. Well, concerned, they boarded the ship. What they found was mystifying, as the ship was completely deserted. The ship's cargo was 1,700 barrels of alcohol. It was untouched. Money boxes full. Plenty of food and water on board. In fact, some reports tell of finding a meal on the table as if dinner had just been served. Toys had been found on the captain's bed as if his little daughter had just uh, played with them. Everybody's clothes were still on board. Only things missing were nautical charts and maps, a lifeboat, and, well, all the people. Where'd they go? Well, the mysterious disappearance of the Mary Celeste crew had people all over the world wondering. Some believed the crew mutinied, murdered the captain and his family, and, and took the ship. But if that was the case, where'd the crew go? Maybe pirates attacked the ship and killed everybody aboard. But then they walked off and left the money and 1,700 barrels of, alco- barrels of alcohol. The most outrageous explanation offered was that the ship had been attacked by a giant squid. But a squid wouldn't have been empty interested in the ship's papers and squid wouldn't need a lifeboat well the mystery of the mary celeste has puzzled people for over a hundred years and all that time according to experts only one reasonable explanation has been proposed according to this theory four things happened in succession one the captain died of natural causes while the ship was caught in bad weather two a crew member misread the depth of the water in the hole, and everybody thought the ship was sinking. Three, they panicked and abandoned ship in such a hurry they took no food or water. And four, everybody in the lifeboat eventually starved or drowned. Well, it's possible that happened. It's equally possible aliens came down and beamed them up. Nobody will ever know what happened. And on that note, we come to the end of today's show. We'll be doing other shows about uh, stupid crimes, uh, strange crimes and stupid criminals. But until Monday at this time, this is Ken Hudnall for the Ken Hudnall Show saying have a truly great evening. <laughs>